Hey listeners, welcome to Crafty, the show about amazing people and their craft. On today's show, we are talking with Michael Dante DiMartino. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Crafty. All right, so for our listeners, um, uh, could you please introduce yourself and your craft? Hello, my name is Michael Dante DiMartino. Uh, you can call me Mike, uh, and I am known best for Avatar The Last Airbender. I was co-creator of that, along with The Legend of Korra, uh, two animated series. So I guess my craft is mainly, right now, it's storytelling, writing, um, but my background is also in, in art and animation, drawing and all that stuff that goes along with animation. That's fantastic. I remember going over to my friend's house and uh, <laughs> turning on that show and hiding away from the parents while they all uh, drank wine downstairs and uh, made a ruckus. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess a question one is um, what influenced your path to animation? I'm sure that's a common question, but it's nonetheless an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I came to animation in kind of a roundabout way. I grew up in Vermont. Um so there wasn't a lot of animation <laughs> going on there. So growing up, I was into drawing and painting, uh, kind of more fine arts sort of stuff. And I always liked animation and thought it was a cool medium. I'd watch all the Disney movies because that was really the only thing back then. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know, you know, who made it, how it got made or any of that stuff. Um, so I kind of focused on the fine arts aspect and thought I wanted to get into painting or illustration. And uh, I went to art school at my freshman year. I went to an art school in Baltimore, Maryland. And around that time I was like, I was still trying to like figure out what I wanted to focus on art wise. I knew I wanted to do art, but I just wasn't quite sure. And I found out uh, Rhode Island school of design, which is where I spent most of my college years uh, had an animation and film program. So when I found that out, uh, I was, my my kind of like uh, latent interest and excitement about animation reemerged and uh, transferred to that school and started, you know, making my own films there and kind of learning more about animation and filmmaking in general. Fantastic. It's actually funny you say you came from Vermont. I'm in Exeter, New Hampshire right now. Oh, OK. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, I miss I miss the East Coast sometimes. Not in the winter, but... <laughs> so are you uh, over in Washington now? Or something like that? I'm in Los Angeles. Los yes. Angeles, yeah, because I, I know yeah. like a lot of the, the like video game production, a lot of uh, animation projects either take place in Chicago, Los Angeles, or, or Washington. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I moved to Los Angeles after Rhode Island School of Design uh, in like 96. So I've been here for a while. There you go. So the the biggest question that uh, that I have is, um, you know, there, there's a lot of aspects that go into creating a show as a whole. Like, you know, you've got your voice actors, your screenplay writers, your animators, uh, your music team, and anybody else that I don't know about. So, you know, this is kind of a singular vision project. Uh, how do you get an entire design team of all these people all on the same page? Yeah, I mean, that is a, a, a wide, encompassing question. I'll, I'll do my best to try to break it down. I mean, it really always starts, you know, and I'll speak about uh, Avatar and Legend of Korra. You know, it all started with me and Brian, the other Brian Konetsko, the other uh, creator of the show. Uh, it always starts with us in a room 
figuring out ideas, coming up with characters, or Brian sketching uh, characters. And that's how it all starts. It starts with, you know, sometimes just one person, but in our case, two people. And it just starts getting, it just snowballs from there. So we have our, you know, our, you know, we come up with the idea and the kind of an outline for the show and who the characters are and all that stuff. But then to actually make it, you start needing more people. So in, in the case of Avatar, we made a pilot episode. And so that was like kind of a small team of us. And uh, we worked with a studio in Korea to animate it. Um, so there was like a team there, a team in Burbank. But again, that was like a small, you know, it was probably, I don't know, a few dozen people for that. Then when we got picked up to the series and you got like an order for 13 episodes, then you got to add like, uh, production staff and designers and writers and directors and all those other you know people that help you make the show. So it, it's really all about you know Brian and I always talk about like our job was like half the creative part, which was like coming up with ideas and and the vision and all that stuff, but half of it was just managing it and like finding the right people uh, who could help us execute it the way we wanted to uh and finding the right creative partnerships with like the overseas studio in korea um finding the right animators there so it was um a lot of putting on both the creative writer artist hat and then switching over to the producer manager hat <laughs> a lot of the time as well yeah i just i find it fascinating because you know everyone is a perfectionist in their own way and has got their own vision it's just, it's incredible to see how it all comes together in a singular vision. You know, really good shows can pull that off well. Yeah, and it's it's certainly not easy. I mean, it's, you know, like I said, finding the right people is, is tough. Um, and then the perfectionist thing, too, is like, you know, we're on, we have a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time to do it in. And it's like, how can we make the best show we can make with those with whatever resources we have. And certainly we had a lot of resources, but it's not an infinite amount. It's not an infinite amount of time. And you have to do like 20 episodes a season in the case of Avatar. So it was balancing a lot of different creative needs and, and stuff that Brian and I wanted to do with just the practical side of TV production for animation. Yeah. Sounds good to me. So, <laughs> um, so in the case of storytelling, I'm glad you said that storytelling is one of your crafts. Um, there's, there's a few issues in modern storytelling that, um, <laughs> that a, a few people would be able to you know, point out in certain video games especially. But the concept of uh, show, don't tell. It's you know, re sure. reducing the amount of exposition that happens in, a, in storytelling and, and showing what you're trying to say rather than trying to explain it. So um what are what are some details that uh about show don't tell that you can incorporate in animation? I think it's a little bit in some ways it's easier. I found so, you know, right now I'm writing these uh, series of of prose novels um which is quite different than writing for for TV animation I, and I find that one difference is that you know for for film or animation or something like that you have the benefit of seeing, uh, you know, a character walking into a scene and just taking in the background or the environment around that character or seeing someone do some magic or something. And like, 
just the the fact of like you are literally showing it in action and so you don't have to like you might then add some explanation of, as to like what's going on but um you definitely have the benefit of just the visual storytelling medium of like seeing what's going on versus you know as i'm writing these prose novels like having to show a cool location or describe a cool visual magic thing without slowing the pace of the story down um, or getting too technical as to like how it's all happening and stuff. So it's definitely a balance of like um, the, the showing versus the telling. And I think I, I do think the the telling part does get a bad rap because there's, you can't always show everything because especially in a novel where it's like, you'd have a, you know, a, a thousand page novel if you were like literally showing everything that happened. So sometimes you do need like a moment where you just tell what happened to kind of like skip over the boring stuff and get to another scene or something. Um, but it's, yeah, it's certainly a balance. You don't want to, I, I have definitely come across a lot of books where like, um, where I'm, I start reading it and like the author is already telling me everything as, as opposed to like kind of revealing it through the story, like telling me about the world rather than me experiencing the world or telling me here's what the magic is in this world. And it's like, well, just show me the magic first. And then if you need to fill in some holes later, that's cool. You can explain it afterwards um, to help kind of uh, add to the, to the uh, descriptions. Yeah. A prime example would be like the, the first halo, you know, when you know, that, remember that video game? I don't know if you got to play it, but um, uh, I mean, I, I'm familiar with it. I, I admit I'm not a huge gamer, so I, I've never actually played it, but I know what it is. <laughs> oh, good. Well, yeah, like in the, it was um, the very first one was very setting driven. So in that case, you know, they, you know, humanity in the in the story first shows up to the ring. They have no idea anything about it, which means the audience doesn't either. But when you first yeah. land on it, you, you know absolutely nothing about it, but you know the landscape is literally you standing on a ring and you can see it in the backdrops and the paintings and it inspires a particular type of mystery and curiosity. But I mean, they, I mean, I guess there could have been some sort of narrator that said, Hey, you're, you're on a, you're on a super weapon. This is a habitable environment. No, you crash landed on it and found out for yourself and you're looking around this wide open ring like, wow. Yeah, that's cool. That's always more effective, I think. And then, yeah, if you get into the story and there's a reason you need to know more information, then, you know, you're you're more invested in the story and you're willing to go along with some little exposition if you need it. Yeah, exactly. Like if you come like, yeah, drawing from that again, you know, you come across a piece of architecture that actually has a function and someone has to explain it to you because God forbid you see what it does. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. All right, so let me let me see. Um, so, are, are there any real limitations in animation? I know that's kind of a of a silly question, but uh, like what you can kind of portray visually, I suppose. Uh, for sure. I mean, in our case, where we're doing um, you know animation for television, which is more limiting than working on a feature, um, and we are doing. Um, 2D animation, traditional, mostly traditional drawing, as opposed to you know 3D computer models. Um, we used a, some of those for like vehicles and stuff, but all the character stuff is all you know drawn by hand. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's always a trade-off. So in, in some respects, like we could do stuff in our shows that 
would cost, you know, millions and millions of dollars if you tried to make a live action movie of it with, you know, CG effects and stuff. But uh, there's still a limit to like what a human can draw. <laughs> and so, you know, what, certainly one of the most taxing things on the show for the animators was like doing a lot of the effects. We always had fire, cool water, earth, all that stuff. Um, and that was all, you know, hand drawn with like some enhancement with with uh, computer effects and stuff. But uh, yeah, there's there reaches a limit, and we kind of pushed the limit as far as we could take it, especially with Legend of Korra. Um, as far as like what just technically what people could draw within the time frame and budget we had, um, and the artists always came through and did amazing work for us. But uh, yeah, I mean, even on a feature like a Pixar movie or something like they they have limitations too. <laughs> you know, it's they. Uh, so there's always a trade-off with 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 any sort of visual medium as far as like what you're trying to show. Yeah, watching the professionals work, it really seems like there never is a limitation. So I figured I'd I'd ask just in case there was that no one knew about. Yeah, and I mean honestly, it's good to have limitations. I think sometimes I always it is tempting to be like I want to you know have like unlimited toolbox of every trick ever, but. Sometimes the most creative things we came up with were were times where we were limited in like, well, we're running out of time. What's the best, most creative solution we can do to figure out how to solve this problem or, you know, fix this uh, certain scene or something that wasn't working right or something. So, um, so I find uh, limitations can be can be helpful to kind of focus your creative attention. That's interesting. That's the last thing I would have expected. No, and, and even with writing books where, like, literally anything's possible, you, you know, you're not limited by budget or anything where you can write whatever you want. Like, you still need some parameters as far as, like, what, you know, especially if you're creating, like, a fantasy world, like, what are the parameters of the magic in this world? Or what are what is what kind of environment are we in? You know, you're, if you just start throwing every creature and every kind of magic in the world, it starts getting, like, really overwhelming and confusing. And it's not serving, like depending what the point of your story is, it, it's likely not helping you uh, be clear about what, what your point you're trying to get across in your story is. Take Magic the Gathering, the card game, for example. Like Every single creature that's ever been mentioned in fantasy ever is in the game. Right. And I imagine, that, yeah, something with like a game, it's a little different because it's, it's beneficial to have a wide variety of like magic and creatures and stuff like that. But if you try to like... I think that's always why it's hard to adapt those things into like a, a interesting story because it's the worlds are so crazily huge and vast. It's like, what do you focus on? How do you like, how do you take this crazy amount of information and like distill it into, you know, a few characters on a on a journey or a quest or something like that? Yeah. So um. Yeah, so speaking of which, I guess, I mean, this wasn't on my list of questions, but I guess I, I can't be somewhat curious, but uh, what are what were some of the differences between the procedures or writing the story of uh, between The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra? I can't help but be curious now. Um, I mean, just practicality-wise, we, you know, on, on Avatar, we had a team of writers, um, you know, we had, I think, six or seven writers including myself and brian and you know everyone would we all sit in a room together and like 
hash out the stories and discuss the stories and the arcs for the season. But then one writer would go off and write the that particular episode. Uh, for Legend of Korra, we kind of pared down the team a little bit. So, like, writing-wise, for first season, Jess, Brian, and I wrote all the scripts. Um, and then as we got into more seasons and production was getting crazier, we brought on um, two writers who had worked with us on, on Avatar. So it was a very small team. Um, but, yeah, like, creative-wise, it was a very similar process where we were all as a group, like, talking about the characters and the stories and the arcs and kind of getting on the same page about like where we're going and what this story is going to be. Um, ha- you know, like putting, uh, literally putting note cards on a wall of like each beat in the story and breaking it down that way um, before the writer goes off and, and writes the, the script. And then even once they do write the script, we all come back and read the script and give our notes and kind of like revise it together so that everyone's, uh, on the same page. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I imagine a keeping track of a canon within a storyline is extremely difficult. Um, it is, but yeah, like, like if we're all doing it together, then it's, um, it's not too bad. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're going to need a lot of people to contribute their remembrance and knowledge into that sort of thing. Otherwise, uh, you get weird little plot holes and mistakes, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, we did our best to <laughs> keep everything consistent. And uh, and now, like, I'm writing um, the graphic novels for Legend of Korra now, continuing the story. And just the, about that world-building stuff, like, I'm always checking Avatar Wiki, uh, which has, like, the most extensive, <laughs> you know, like, breakdown of, like, the creatures and the characters in the world. I'm like... So I don't know who's writing all this stuff, but they did a really good job with it. And uh, I'm always checking that out because I'm like, wait, what did we do in that one episode? Did we ever talk about this? You know, like to make sure that I'm not like contradicting something we did or uh, or I could use like an idea that we had in the show or a character uh, could bring them back. Excellent. That's perfect. So, um, yeah, speaking of graphic novels, um, I know this is kind of a common question maybe, but uh, what writers influenced you? So, I mean, specifically, I'm, like, with video games, people are sometimes surprised. Like, I'm, I wasn't a big comic book reader um, growing up uh, or a big fantasy reader, which is, like, both of the things I'm doing now. Um, I was always reading, you know, as a kid, I was reading, like, I guess they're kind of fantasy, like, Roald Dahl books, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, those, you know, when I was a kid. And then growing up, I got more into, like, just, like, literature uh, books um, and then and then now I've kind of come around and now I'm more into fantasy and stuff I'm really into Brandon Sanderson's uh, Way of Kings series right now um, but comics wise I was reading the new uh, Black Panther comics by Todd Nahasi Coates uh, for, A because I like that character and I like that writer and also just trying to immerse myself in, in comics writing a little bit more and and familiarizing myself with, with uh, what's out there. Also, Scott McCloud, um, who wrote, uh, he wrote The Sculptor, but he also writes a lot of, uh, you know, uh, like teaching books about comics and stuff, like how to, how to understand comics, how to write comics and stuff like that. So uh, his books are helpful as well. 
That's actually that's actually some of the coolest things I've heard in a long time. How to write a comic and how to interpret it. That's perfect. What I could do with that. Yeah, if anyone yeah, I would definitely put that, you know, anyone who's interested in either writing or um or just appreciating comics, um his his books are really good. And they're written like a comic. They're not like a like a nonfiction. I mean, they're nonfiction, but they're not written like a nonfiction book. They're written like a comic and he's a character in it, like telling you all about here's how, here's a history of comics and how they work and how you, why there are certain conventions in the comics and that kind of stuff. That's perfect. A lot of our listeners are going to love that because uh, speaking of which, I mean, the person, one of the people who I work with at the dealership that I work at, cause I also, I'm also in the car business. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, she is currently going to school to be an animator and uh, oh, cool. yeah she walks around with a gigantic alienware computer it's, it's my god it's like it's twice the size of her but <laughs> this thing is powerful oh my god so i i suppose um that comes in the next question what would you suggest to others who want to animate like you um well to be clear i'm not really a good animator <laughs> like even though i studied animator animation and i made like my own uh, film, you know, animated films, a couple of them, shorts. Like, I never, I never was like worked as an animator. I mainly worked as like a storyboard artist and a director um, before we, you know, got into doing Legend or uh, Avatar and Korra. Um, so actually, my my experience with like actually animating characters is is kind of limited. But I under, you know, I've. I understand it because, like, it's such a big, you know, like I mentioned, it's such a big production to do that. Like, um, my my focus just kind of went more toward the uh, the storyboarding and directing side of things. And a lot of people don't know, like, unless you are working in features. I mean, things are different now, but like when I was starting um, my career, like there wasn't, especially in TV animation, nobody was doing. Uh, animation here in the states it's all it was all overseas and that's still the case now but um things have changed a lot especially with like uh you know different computer animation programs and stuff like people do more stuff in the states now or in canada but uh in any case that was a roundabout way of saying like (laughs) i'm not really a good animator at all and i actually haven't literally animated in a very long time um but, uh, yeah, I get, there's just, like, so many more resources now for people who are interested in studying animation that, like, you know, a lot of people ask, like, do you have to go to college to become an animator? And, like, it's totally a personal choice because, like, to get hired on a show or it's not like um, you need, and it's not like in your, in the business world or something and you need a mba or something like people will be like that's cool you got an mfa or you know bfa or whatever but like nobody that's not like a prerequisite to like getting a job i had you know plenty of people who worked on i've worked with who you know didn't go to art school or went for a couple years and then got a job um early so it's totally a personal decision of whether you're going to actually go to an art school to study animation um because like I said, there's so many resources now online and stuff that, or, or like schools that are not like a four year traditional school, you know, where you're just like focusing on animation. Um, 
that you can learn that stuff. I mean, I would, and then on the flip side of that, the argument for going to like a school, art school, depending which one it is, like in my case, I always like to say it was, it was very beneficial because I learned how to become a filmmaker more than just like, I learned a skill, you know, one specific skill of like how to animate, which, you know, I, I learned all the different processes that go into making a film that served me well as I became a director and then, you know, co-showrunner of these shows where I have a more kind of holistic view of the whole process as opposed to just like, I got really good at this one specific thing, you know, which is fine. I mean, there's, you need those people too, but my brain just works kind of in a different way, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm a firm believer in that. It's a, a lot of it is, you know, who you know and how you market yourself, really. That's, that's what I've noticed to be the biggest thing. Yeah, that, I mean, that helps too. I mean, I had, but you don't need a lot of, I mean, maybe now it's different, but when I started, I literally had one connection when I moved to LA and luckily it paid off <laughs> and that's how I got my first job. Uh, I had one phone number of one guy who worked in animation and he happened to be working on King of the Hill at the time uh, when it was just starting. <laughs> that was my first job was King of the Hill when it was the very first season and, uh, and got to, yeah, was a storyboard artist on that. When that it was just starting. The last thing I would have guessed. King of the Hill. <laughs> King of the Hill and then yeah, and then Family Guy for a little while. I was a director on on that when it was just starting out as well. So Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. So um yeah, so speaking of um I suppose you said something earlier about it uh, a little bit, but I was I was wondering how um Asian style animations wound up in an American animation setting, but it sounds like you were able to kind of outsource the animation project in that aspect. Yeah. I mean, like, so to kind of like give a little history of it, the like animating overseas was just something that has been going on in a long time in the animation industry, especially in TV animation. So it kind of started in the 80s, I think, like all those old cartoons, like G.I. Joe, I used to watch that, and Transformers, all those classic ones. Um, you know, they started outsourcing that back in the day. And so when I started animation on King of the Hill, like that was just the way it works. It's like you do the kind of pre-production stuff and the writers do the writing in the States and the voice recording and all that stuff. And then kind of you do all the planning, all the design, and then you send it overseas and a few months later, the episode comes back. And it's kind of this magical thing. Like, you know, how do, you know. Uh, but when, you know, there were, there were pluses and minuses to that process, especially when there wasn't, you know, my experience on those other shows was that there wasn't, didn't seem to be a lot of, like, communication between the states and the studios in South Korea. So when Brian and I set up our production, we wanted to, you know, we had both, like, had this experience in TV animation and seen like that they just weren't those studios over there weren't being utilized to their full potential. We felt so we tried to get them more creatively invested in avatar, um, giving them more creative leeway as far as like leaving more of the animation up to them and not dictating exactly like how it was supposed to be animated because they're like, you guys are the experts, you know, you, have more experience in the actual animation part of it. It's like, we still have to do all the planning and kind of give you the, you know, the blueprint as to how we want it to go. But uh, they would always add and embellish um, 
character animation stuff or that like the effects stuff like would be you know way beyond our expectation and stuff so it was it was in the end it was uh it was definitely a good partnership um so we both brian and i both spent a lot of time in korea over the years like visiting the studios and working with the artists directly and getting to know them and um so you know there was much more of a personal connection with them than on other shows i'd worked on in the past yeah sounds sounds good to me um so i guess um i kind of went into this a little bit but um how does individual how does individualism contribute with so many people with different ideas though you mean um how do you mean exactly like well if if someone has like a particular idea of what they of what they want um like a scene to either look like or sound like or how they want it to be explained or shown that's cuz sure yeah just uh, i was wondering how uh, individualism plays a part cuz i imagine people are going to have to make compromises yeah, and and we did too as the show creators. Um, I, uh, Brian and I always tried to, like, we had a clear vision of what we wanted to accomplish and then leave enough room for people to have their own, uh, their own ability to add to it or augment it. Like, we never wanted to, like, restrict people's creativity, but there are times where, you know as the kind of leader of the team, you have to make decisions or say, okay, here's a bunch of choices. Which one, which, which direction are we going to go in? And, you know, there, so we certainly had to like kind of steer the ship in that, um, in that respect, but we tried to do our best to leave, uh, like with the Korean studios, you know, like that philosophy of like, all right, guys, here's your kind of like directive of like what we need to accomplish. But within that, you know, definitely like, you know, do your thing, you know, add your, add your flavor to it. So. Yeah, absolutely. So th- I guess that also relates to how do you choose what's important on the cutting floor? Cause I mean, so many times people see deleted scenes or what have you or concept art and they, they can't help but wish that it was in either a game or a movie or a show. So how do you decide? Well, with our, with TV animation, I guess the way we decide is by um, not, I should say that like the end product is basically everything that we animated. So a lot of people are like, where are all the deleted scenes on the, on the DVDs? Like there weren't any there like other than like little, you know, trimming, you know, a scene here and there a little bit. Um, Yeah. And the reason, and this happens, a lot in animation um the reason that is is because well a you don't have a lot of time to like just animate a bunch of stuff because it takes so long to animate so the process that um that we use and you know most most uh, productions use is that once the script is done you do the storyboards which are like you know the panels of each each scene and what the characters are doing in the scene and that sort of stuff and then that is made into a, like a rough animatic, which is basically like, you know, you've probably seen them on DVD extras or whatever. Like you, even live action films do them all the time now. Like um, just kind of like a previs of like what the show is going to look like in a very rough format with the, you know, and you're, you have at that point, you have the, the voice actors recorded. Um, so you're putting that with the voices and 
yeah, you're just watching that and seeing how long it's it, it is. If it's if it's significantly over, you got to then rewrite and cut things down. So it's basically like the I would say that kind of editing process that you're talking about happens before it ever gets animated um, because when it goes to the studio to be animated, we want it to be as close to the uh, you know final length as we want because we don't want them spending a ton of time animating stuff that's we're going to cut anyway because we had a certain you know it varied over the years but we had a certain length of show that we had to edit to uh to get to be on nickelodeon and it was around 22 23 minutes depending on what what show we were working on but um so we would always try to uh hit that mark with the animatics and then um when it came to the editing of the, the actual animation like i said it was just like cutting out little things here and there. Sometimes you'd, you know, cut out a line or something like that, but nothing more significant than that, really. <laughs> that sounds incredibly efficient because like, you watch the extras or literally watch anything else, any other TV show, it's just they're, they're talking endlessly about the cutting floor. Yeah, and I think it's a totally different process with uh, with live action. I mean, you just, if you have the actors there, you're going to shoot as much as you can with them and then, you know, even if you have a script, you might be improvising or whatever. But especially now with all the, I mean, with the big tentpole movies with like tons of CG in them, like those are pretty heavily prevised before, you know, they have to like know what they're shooting so that they can do the effects afterwards and stuff. So there's a lot from animation that is now being, you know, is more common in live action uh, effects movies and stuff. That's interesting because the first thing that popped up to me was a uh, Game of Thrones for some reason <laughs> and how much filming and cutting they may or may not need to do. Yeah, I'm not sure with them. I mean, certainly there's there's a mix of like the very effects heavy shows, which I know they have you know extensively planned out, and then the the more talky scenes, which I don't know, you know they might shoot a lot more for those scenes than we see in the final product. All right, yeah, perfect. So um, so I, I guess uh, there's, uh, there's a few people out there, I'm assuming, that are wondering this. Uh, were you able to be an influence on M. Night Shyamalan's rendition of The Last Airbender? Uh, we tried, but we were not. <laughs> and honestly, nobody else was either. So, yeah, it, that was a, you know, we don't talk about it, that one too much. Based, about, based on what I hear, that sounds about right. Yeah, it did not, was not the, uh, you know, it was a... It, almost a very typical Hollywood experience of an adaptation of a property that people loved that did not meet expectations of anyone. So this sounds like this hurts you deeply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, there's not much to say about it anymore. Cause it's like, it is what it is. It wasn't good. Nobody, I mean, every once in a while, people, a couple people will say, Oh, I kind of liked it, but most people have forgotten it by about it by now. So, that's absolutely tragic. <laughs> so, um, all right, well, that, that takes care of that. Um, <laughs> so, are there any current projects that you're able to tell me about? Well, I mean, my main uh, project right now is uh, this series of uh, prose fantasy novels that I'm writing. It's called Rebel Genius. It was the first one. The second one's called Warrior Genius. Those two are out right now. Uh, I'm working on the third one. And they are uh, a series of middle grade fantasy books. 
some people don't know what middle grade is. So think like early Harry Potter books, that age group, um, or Percy Jackson, that kind of like, uh, you know, it's also like the age range that Avatar was supposed was targeted for, but obviously it expanded beyond that. And and like with Avatar, I think these books um, expand beyond the typical middle grade reader. So they're the first book is set in a kind of like a fictional Renaissance world where artists have uh, these bird familiars, these creatures that allow them to perform magic. And so there's a main, the main character's name is Giacomo and he's this orphan kid who doesn't really know, uh, you know, is this kind of like a mystery about his origins and stuff and him going on this meeting up with these other kids with geniuses and going on this quest for uh, across the world. It's very, you know, there's definitely some similarities between Avatar and, and this new series as far as like kids on an adventure going on a quest sort of things and cool creatures and a, you know, fantasy world inspired by real world cultures. So, uh, yeah, it's been fun to write new challenge. Um, and, uh, yeah, people, people like avatar and they like reading, they probably enjoy it. <laughs> uh, and then I'm also, like I mentioned, I'm also writing the legend of Korra graphic novels, uh, which there's two out now and there'll be one more coming, uh, this year. Cool. So, um, what goes into writing for a target audience? Um, I mean, for the for my for my book series, it's kind of like it's more of like a general category for publishers and booksellers to um, to use when they're selling books. Um, when I write, I'm I mean, I have that in mind that I'm writing for young readers, but it doesn't. Like with Avatar, it never felt like, never feels limiting as far as like what I can and can't do. And I actually, in, in, in publishing, things are even more permissive as far as like stuff you can write about. I think just because it's not visual on the screen that kids can see, like uh, you, can, you can get a little darker or um, not that I'm trying to like write like super violent stuff, but, <laughs> but there's like definitely some dark dark stuff in the book and, and serious uh, moments and danger and stuff like that. Yeah. You, you can get heavy without need, needing to necessarily show the grim gory details of it. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think there's just something different with, uh, with, a, a, a you know, the written medium versus, versus TV or, or movies. It's just, it's just there's just a, you can, I use the word get away with, but it sounds weird. Like you're trying to like sneak stuff by people, but it's more, it's just more permissive, I guess, or more, you know, like there's not, there's not like people combing over every, every word, like, you know, editing it for you. I mean, there are editors, but in a, in a different, they're, they're focusing on different things, I guess. Right. Like the, like the concept of betrayal and loss is an extremely heavy topic but you can explain or show that without people's heads exploding and swearing a lot totally and i i feel like kids there's so much in kids literature that is kind of serious that um that you know with even harry potter like that got super dark and serious and heavy even what we did on avatar like there's you know a, Aang's entire culture got wiped out and it was like a serious that's a very serious heavy thing <laughs> that he had to deal with um so it's yeah I, I just I don't like limit myself as far as like the topics I would explore in 
kids fiction or television or yeah so I, I just try to write stuff that like interests me and stuff i know i probably would have enjoyed reading or watching as a kid one thing i noticed with like a what is it called middle age uh mid middle grade yeah middle grade there we go yeah yeah because i'm thinking middle age and that's actually people in the 40s and 50s <laughs> <laughs> totally different totally different yeah, no, mid grade <laughs> so i mean like one thing that you'll notice is like you know heavy harry potter gets heavier as time goes on it's, does that have anything yeah. to do with possibly the the listeners or watchers or readers aging with the show um it does i mean yeah some people talk about harry potter the other like way they delineate what's middle grade versus young adult which is more like hunger game stuff is the age of the protagonist so when harry is 12 and 13 he's more middle grade when he's 17 and the last book like that's some people consider that more it kind of kind of morphed into young adult um, or Hunger Games where Katniss is, I think she's 17, 16 or 17. So basically like that's, that's kind of like one of the only directives that a publisher will give you is like, if you're, if your main character is 16 and you say you're writing middle grade, they'll say like, no, you, your character has to be 12 or 13 because the kids reading this are trying to, are reading either their age or they're like a little bit younger reading up to that age. Um, so that's why I say like, Avatar was kind of middle grade because Aang was 12 and then Korra is more young adult because it is a little darker, a little more serious. And Korra was a teenager. So uh, it has, has kind of has to do with the, yeah, the age of the, the main character. It's actually really interesting. Cause I mean, like <laughs> middle grade readers are probably not going to understand the, you know, like relationship issues that happen at, uh, with um, young adult ones. Totally. And that's, yeah, that's also another delineation where it's like, sometimes there is like some romance stuff in middle grade, but it's very light and very like, Ooh, I might like that person. Or, you know, there's not a lot of like heavy romance as and YA is like often very focused on that uh, side of things. So yeah, makes enough sense. <laughs> so um, that just about wraps up all the questions I have. Are there any, uh, any closing, anything closing that you'd like to tell to our listeners? Uh, I would just say if you want, so I now have a website, uh, if people want to learn more about, uh, avatar stuff or my books, um, you can go to michaeldantedemartino.com, just my whole name spelled out. And, uh, I've got a bunch of resources on there and, and stuff like that. So if you're, if you're curious and yeah, cause a lot of people want to know, like, I'm always getting questions like, where do you guys come up with the idea? What, you know, like stuff we've talked about a lot over the years. So there's, other podcasts links to other podcasts there where brian and i sometimes it's just me sometimes me and brian talking about the origins of avatar we also wrote um the art of the animated series which was the original for the original series uh it's an art book uh put out by dark horse comics and it has like all the art from the show but it also has very uh thorough kind of um writings by me and brian that kind of talk about the origins of the story and stuff if people are like you know creators or people who are like i want to write my own fantasy world or animation uh, animated series or something like that's one resource i would definitely point them to yeah that's something i'd love to see like the the origins of like coming up with the story that's just, that's a that's a yeah probably takes a really long time to explain what thought <laughs> process to actually think of an entire world yeah, although ours was, uh, if if you read these books and 
watch these things. Yeah, our our process was actually like the initial process was actually quite short. Uh, it was just a few weeks long for like coming up with the kind of all the stuff that eventually became Avatar. Um, so, so it doesn't. You don't have to. Unlike my my prose work, where I had that I had that idea for like ten i ten years working on it off and on. So sometimes it just takes a little time. And, and, uh, of, uh, and you get a great uh, great thing going. Sometimes it takes a little while, a little while longer to uh, get things moving. But. Sounds good. Well, I want to thank <laughs> you very much for being uh, the first one on the first episode of Crafty Podcast. This is I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having. Me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Mike DiMartino. That's absolutely. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Crafty. The show is hosted by me, Nick Dole, and produced by Eric Lambiassi. We strive to share the experiences of amazing people that we might know and definitely love. Listen again in two weeks, and stay crafty.